I have to preach the word of God here uh, today, and, and that is the most important thing. And, and, and here is it true for you today, that you would receive God's word. The most important thing for you right now is that God has you here to hear him speak. And so I'm going to ask, we've been praying this prayer, I'm going to pray it again. Holy Spirit, speak. God, my heart right now, I even feel a rigidness, a closed offness towards you. So God, I ask for an openness, an openness that will allow God for Jesus to be seen and heard and known and believed in. God, that, that only comes with me seeing you, knowing you, hearing you and believing in you. So God, do that work by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, bring us into unity. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. So we have these thoughts in life that consume us. The thought patterns of your life are the things that drive the daily things that you do, the way you feel, the places you spend your money, the places you spend your time. It's, it's all driven by this verbal talking that takes place in your mind in your heart, there's this obedience that you naturally give yourself to with the thoughts that consume you. And here's what I mean by that, is that this passage unpacks some things that have to break down the thought patterns of our lives so that we can begin to live rightly in light of God's word and God's truth. These thought patterns in life that that we we tell ourselves, that the world tells us in the commercialized culture, the messages that are trying to get across to us is that you are your own person and God doesn't really matter all that much. Maybe he does a little bit, but really what you want, what you desire, what you think, what you feel, that's what's king. And so give yourself to those thoughts And then your actions will follow. And I want to reverse that. I want to say, what if we gave ourselves to the thoughts of God and allowed God's thoughts to transform our mind, which then transforms our heart, which then transforms our actions? Because what the author of Hebrews today is going for is life change. He's going for life change. You're not going to get life change unless you get heart change. And heart change is what God does in the deep inner workings of us. So, so there's kind of these, these three thoughts that, that go through here um, that you see is you have the thoughts of our relationships with others. What do you think about when you think about others? What do you think about as it relates to how you're viewed by others? We all have, probably most of us have social media accounts. And those social media accounts come with friends, quote unquote. Uh, How many of those people are actually real friends in your life? How many of those people are real substantial relationships? Then why do we care so much about impressing people that we don't even know, or we're never going to see, or we're going to come into contact with a day-to-day basis? Because our human heart gravitates towards these thoughts that say, I have to be accepted in order to be loved. And if I'm not accepted, then I'm not loved, so therefore I don't matter. That thought needs to change. 
And then they get closer to us. The relationships with here, the husband and wife, or the family, or for the church family. Those relationships are relationships that are built upon significance through God's eyes and God's heart. The relationships that we have in this room even, and under our roofs, and in our homes. Those relationships are relationships that ultimately should point to Jesus. But somehow... This hardwired thought pattern in us says that those relationships are all about me. Those relationships are, are meant to glorify me. They're meant to say something about me. And so if my wife dishonors me, well then, I've got to figure out how to do something different there. I've got to figure out how to get her on board with what I'm doing. If my kids disobey me, then I think... How can I make them obedient to me? And so our thought patterns that create this tension in our inner relationships that really all function around us, that's a problem. And that's a problem that God wants to speak into. Our thoughts about sex. We live in a sexualized culture. In fact, much of the media today capitalizes on those thoughts much of the things that are viewed on your, your computer screen capitalize on those thoughts. If you are not involved in a sexual relationship, so to speak, then the world says, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? But the gospel breathes something completely different. It says that your worth and value does not come with the way you look or the way the world views you, but the way that God made you and the way that God made you to know him and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so he begins to reorient all these things. And so I want to bring out this quote to you. Uh, There's a woman, her name's Rebecca Pippert. She wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And she is so good at diagnosing the human heart. I read her books and I think, man, this woman, she just wrote a book on me. Like, I'm reading a book that she wrote a book on me back in the 1980s. How did she look into my life back in that time? And no, this is the way I'm going to be. Because she's so good at diagnosing the human heart. And she says this. She says, people have two things in common. We want to be loved. We want to be happy. And we want to be loved. Two things. Everybody in the world has these two things in common. We want to be happy and we want to be loved. We're quite simple people, aren't we? But we cannot understand why something so simple should be so difficult. There's these deep inner longings for happiness. These deep inner longings for love. Those are the two things that we all want. Those are the two things that are common about us today. But why is it we cannot get those things? Why is it that we find ourselves anxious, fearful, and depressed, and like we are chasing things that do not exist? Because the very things that we want so bad are the very things that seem to slip through our fingers like a shadow. Because we're often looking for those things, places where they cannot bring about true love and true happiness. And so the author of Hebrews in the passage before this points us to the unshakable realities of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is 
unshakable. God's kingdom will never be taken away. Why? Because God is God. And He's the only thing that is truly certain from before the foundations of the world. So everything that He has made... He is made to withstand the test of time. He is made to withstand the shaking that will take place in our world. And that's what the author of Hebrews talked about last week, that there is this shaking that takes place in our lives. And oftentimes, for us, the significance here is where our lives are shaken are the things that we've looked to for love and happiness and found that those things are not fulfilling. Found that those things don't really produce it. And so it's a real good gift of God when our lives are shaken because what's stripped away are the things that need to be stripped away because those things are the things that we look to for love, significance, and happiness outside of the unshakable rock that is Jesus Christ. And so he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God Acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That reverence and awe of worship that says, God, you are worth more than anything else. And on that day of judgment, I know that with my hope in Jesus Christ, you have given me a kingdom unshakable, eternal life That is certain because your son, Jesus Christ, is certain. And so the question for us today is how do we worship in reverence and awe? As you read the book of Hebrews, I I want us to think about when the church of Hebrews received this letter from the pastor, from the preacher, from the author. They didn't receive it with chapters next to it. They didn't receive it with verse numbers. He didn't say refer to verse 6 of chapter 4. No, it was just a letter written, and so there was a seamless flow that they would read in this letter. And so they read about a life of worship and reverence to God, and then they read about these things that come and flow from that life of worship. In fact, I would argue to you today that unless these things are true of your life, not perfect, hear me by saying that, not perfect, but unless they are true of your life, You're not living in reverence and awe of God and in worship of Him. Because from that knowledge of God being a consuming fire, these things necessarily come out in your life. So, I've got 23 minutes left, and you've got six sermons because we've got six verses. So we're going to do a sermon on every verse. You could almost do that. And uh, the first one, uh, so I'm going to give us six things that we're going to talk about today. Number one, brotherly love. Number two, hospitality. Number three, the prisoner and the mistreated. Number four, marriage. Number five, money. It's funny, most people don't like to go to church because they hear about marriage and money. So you're going to get them both today. And number five is our confident hope in God. And I want to start at the last one. I'm sorry, that's number six, our confident hope in God. Because this is the grounding point of which all the others are going to be true. If you miss this one, the others are going to fall apart. 
The others are going to be fall apart or they're going to be self-contrived, meaning you've got to work really hard in and of your own strength to do it. And that's going to make you prideful when you do and think you're better than others. Or it's going to crush you when you don't and think that you never will. But you've got to believe this last part of our our talk today in verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember the thought patterns of our lives that are so consumed by what others can do to you, the way others think about you, the, other, the way others feel about you. What if you knew the certainty of God being your helper? Whom shall I fear? That's the response. What do I have to worry about? Why am I so anxious? Why am I depressed? Whom shall I fear if my health is taken away and God has given me the unshakable kingdom of Christ? What do I have to worry about? Because God's certainty says that you are loved. And so what can man do to you who are God's beloved child? The king of the universe who's in control of all things has your future in his hands. And he loves you like a son and a daughter. So nobody, hear me, nobody is going to be able to take that away from you. And so your thoughts need to be transformed by that great reality. And so let's start from the the front uh, now at verse 1. Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's the city of brotherly love. In fact, it's a Greek word, philia, and it's the type of love that God has called us to. You have agape love, which is this unconditional uh, love that God gives. But you also have the philia love, which is a a brotherly love, a familial love, a love that God gives us as his children to one another as God's family. When we are in the room today, we're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. We're surrounded by a family. We're surrounded by people whom God has placed in our lives as if we have been given them, been given one another from birth in family. And I know in, in my family that that causes some problems because the closer that my kids get to each other, the closer that they can, the more harm they could do to one another. And the more damage done means the more discipline that daddy is called into. Especially when mom says, hey, deal with that. Okay, you got it. Go to your rooms. But there's a love that also can be overwhelmingly joyful for me as a father to see when my children truly love each other or self-sacrificing for one another. It's those glimpses of glory. It's those glimpses of glory that God gets when his church family is acting in brotherly love. It's the care that God's called us to for one another. It's an otherworldly type of love. It's so important that we have this kind of love because it's not experienced on Facebook. It can't be seen in Instagram. It's only felt when the church is gathered in the context of a gathering like this, but also in our homes, or also when a friend or loved one has a child, or when someone's in the hospital, or when someone's lonely. We know that they are in need of that love and that presence of their family. Just as sure as my sister would call me and say that she has a problem, I would answer that phone no matter what difficulty she might be in, no matter even if she brought that upon herself, I'm going to give her a brotherly love. And that's what we are called to continue and continue in that 
Brotherly love. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love, have love for one another. How, how is the world going to see that we are actually God's children unless we love one another? You've seen brother and sister be upset at each other. You, you know estranged families as they grow older. You, you, you wouldn't really be able to tell brother and sister or even father and mother, because there's this hatred that begins to divide. There's this bitterness that begins to seep in. And then those families aren't families anymore. It's a tragedy, isn't it? It's more tragic with the church when we are those who are God's children, and we say that He is our Heavenly Father, and we cannot look our brother or sister in the eye and say a simple, I forgive you. I know the complexities around that. I know that sometimes the hurt runs deep. And I know sometimes the pain is so hard that forgiveness seems impossible. But we have a God who has forgiven the impossible. We have our Savior who's forgiven us a hundred times over any more than we would forgive anyone else. So let brotherly Love continue. And by this, the whole world will know that you're my disciples. But love in this world can be so superficial, can't it? I love Pollo Tropical. I love their fried plantains. My goodness, it's amazing. Their black beans and rice. You put some of that salsa and onions on it. Oh, so good. I love it. I love it. I love it. But is that the same kind of love that God is talking about here? No. He's talking about a love that actually cares for. There's a stirring of our heart and an affection for the well-being of another person. I don't don't want the well-being of the rice and beans. I just want to eat it. But for our love for each other. No, we, we really long to see that they're treated as we would want to be treated. That's the brotherly love that God has called us for. It's the golden rule. So then as we have opportunity, Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to everyone. And especially, say that word with me, especially, one more time, especially in the household of faith. There are people that say they love God, but don't love the household of faith. Paul says that's sin. Paul says that especially is especially important. And we've got to especially love those who are in the household of faith. You cannot love God and not love his bride. You have to love God and his church because God has called into being his church. As a husband and wife are one, God and his church are united through his son, Jesus Christ. He paid a lot for his bride through his sacrificial death on the cross. That produces a brotherly love. The next point is hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Don't ask me about the unawares part. I could not figure it out in my study this week. Why is unaware pluralized? Somebody's going to have to email me and correct me, because I have no idea. But... The point here is that do not, so, so, so plain, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect it. This is like so important for the church because the way the church grows is by showing hospitality to strangers. 
The way that God's family increases and God's love moves in the mission and heart of a lost and broken world. This is God's chosen means to do it. Is that the church would show hospitality to strangers. Is that the church would love the unlovable. Is that the church would heal the sick. Is that the church would mend the brokenness. And there are people that your love in your hospitality with them will be costly. But it is so important. The church is always meant to be a refuge even for the stranger. I would even say especially for the stranger. Those who are seeking God, the church says, come in. That's what it means. Hospitality means come on in. Be a part of the family. Even though you are previously unknown, it's saying I want to know you. I want to care about you. It says that you're important. And you're invited into my life and you're invited into my heart. Hospitality says I care for you enough to make you a priority. This past week, my car broke down in the middle of the road on Cayley and Bumby. I was about three minutes from home. And my car just, uh, just stopped. Um, so it wouldn't start. There was not really any place to really be able to push it into. I just had to get out of my car. Camden wanted to help me. My son, I was taking him to Cub Scouts, actually taking him home from Cub Scouts. And uh, Camden wanted to get out and help me. I'm like, no, son, just stay in the car. I'll push it. He thought I was He-Man. I felt really good about that. I'm like, no, I actually got a few extra pounds that helped me get it going. (laughs) Anyway, so lots of people passing me by, just passing me by. Some people honking, not realizing that my car wouldn't start, and it just felt like garbage. I wanted to, you know, give them the universal sign for your number one. I didn't. And (laughs) so uh, they passed me by, uh, a, a nice gentleman and a big expedition pulled up behind me. Uh, his name's Artavis. And Artavis said, you need some help? I said, yeah, I do. And Artavis pulled out a tow chain. And he and his son got to quick work. I didn't have to lift a finger. Got out of his car. Got under my car. Did it where are you live and Just point me the direction. We didn't have any, any phone numbers. I had to figure out how to do that brake thing because I'm the one controlling the brakes. That was a new learning experience for me. Nobody died. We're good. So Artavis took me from Kaylee and Bumby to my house without asking for a thing. And I thanked him. I asked for his phone number. And I told him that uh, I was so grateful for it. I mentioned that I was a pastor. He said, me too. Me too. And uh, there I realized that Artavis is a brother. A stranger who I found that was a brother. That's a powerful thing in that little moment in life. There are some that entertained angels by not knowing who they were. This verse does not mean that God's going to test you by sending some angel that you can fail miserably at not accepting into your home. It does not mean that. But it does mean that God had sent angels to serve his people and they had to welcome them in. And it's important that we realize that there are things, there's the divine appointments that God has for us with people. People that will change our lives forever. People that we By the power of the Holy Spirit can change their lives forever. Open your home. Open your heart. Invite them in. Who can you do that with this week? The point is, is that we would make a stranger a friend. And that a friend would become a brother or sister 
in Christ. God's goal of hospitality is not hospitality. God's goal of hospitality is salvation. It's Easter week. You've got those invite cards. Who can you invite into your home in the next two weeks? Invite to our Easter Sunday service and ask them how you could pray for them. Real simple. Have a meal. Go to Pollo Tropical. It's really good. They'll do the cooking for you. Have a meal. And enjoy getting to know a stranger and calling them a friend. And maybe by the power of God's Holy Spirit in your prayers for them, they would come to know a faith in Jesus Christ that they have never known before. And we will clap our hands and we will rejoice when we see them baptized in our YMCA swimming pool. That would be amazing. So let's show hospitality to the prisoner. Man, I got to go quick. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in one body. A few things about the prisoner in that time is that oftentimes people were in prison not because of some absolutely scandalous thing. Not because of some uh, 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 real corruption against society and other people. But they were in prison because they had outstanding debts against the most wealthy of their day. And so they were easily put in prison and they couldn't pay those debts. And if they couldn't pay those debts, they were sold into slavery. Remember the prisoner. Pay their debts. Is what he is saying here. Remember the prisoner. Sometimes the prisoner was an enemy of the state. Rome saw them to be a difficulty. So they, they put them in jail. And in jail they didn't have the kind of health system that we have. Believe it or not in jail people are treated a lot better here than they were in that day. And so the family members had to bring them food. And things for their health and well-being. Remember the prisoner as though you are in prison with them. Remember the prisons, especially those who are in prison because of their faith. Some were being in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Some were being in prison because of persecution. Because Jesus and this movement of Christianity had to be crushed. And so there had to be a warning that you are not to cross Rome with the name of Jesus Christ. So they put him in jail. Don't forget those people, is what he would say. To us, the message is to the prisoner. Some of them are in there because they deserve to be in there. Some of them are in there because they're actually being treated more harshly than they should be. Some of them are in there because they, for any number of reasons, but the point is for us, it doesn't matter why they're in there, just remember them as if you were in there with them. They are people. People matter to God, so therefore they should matter to us. Care for them. There's a woman in my community group every week at the 33rd Street Jail she goes there to remember the prisoner to tell them that they are loved and cared for by God and loved and cared for by her remember the mistreated remember the prisoner remember those whom God has not forgotten marriage this will be two sermons in and of itself Hebrews 13 4 let marriage be held in, in honor among all so in this time period the problem was not as much of people, or the, the, the problem was really the church and their view of marriage was one that did not allow for someone to get married with a clear conscience. And it wasn't because the Bible didn't allow it. It was because of people's own view of piety said that if you gave into marriage, you were giving into a sexual desire that needed to be pushed aside. 
And so marriage was not held in high honor. In fact, if you got married, it was because you were less than. It's because you didn't have self-discipline and self-control. But the author of Hebrews is actually bringing a correction to that. They say, no, marriage is actually something that God has given us and should be held in high honor. It's not a lesser form of life. I think sometimes the reverse can be true in today's society, especially in the church, that sometimes we don't honor singleness. Because sometimes we think that if you've gotten to uh, this place of marriage, then you're in the club. You've arrived. And to that, I say, is a dishonor to marriage and to singleness if you do that. Because Jesus Christ was single. And he did not get married. And he was a very holy man. Perfectly holy. And that was God's way of showing us that you could be single and honor marriage. Like Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul. But in marriage as well, we all are to hold marriage as a high place in society and our world. It's not viewed that way in the world among us. Marriage is, is, is looked at as a piece of paper, a contract to be broken instead of a covenant to be kept. We need to recognize that marriage is a good and godly gift. Honor marriage Marriage was God's design. It was God's idea. So we have to give God the glory for it. When we dishonor marriage, we dishonor God. And God very clearly from before the foundations of the world had a plan for marriage. He gave it to Adam and Eve, a man and a woman. That God would allow a husband and a wife to be wed together. And that would be an honorable thing to show This oneness of one another, that actually gives us a glimpse into the oneness of God's love, his perfect love and his perfect union with his church. This is what, if you're married, your marriage should represent. This is why your marriage matters. This is why some of you need to decide to go to counseling. Because if your marriage does not represent that, you have to ask why. What are the problems? Because this is not just about us. This is about God. And we need God to speak the truth into our marriage. And if people don't see Jesus in our marriage, then our marriage has a problem. Can I just say that? If people don't see Christ in your marriage, there's a marriage problem. It's not how you feel. It's not how good things seem to be. It's do people see Christ? Because God has made it that marriage would be a reflection of God's love for Christ and his church. And there's a sexual ethic that goes alongside of God's marriage. In fact, the sexual ethic is only within the confines of God's idea of marriage. God has given sex as a good gift. But it becomes a tool that is wielded against you and others when it's not in the good gift of marriage. The sexual ethic that God gives the church is between a husband and a wife. And that marriage bed is undefiled. That marriage bed is pure when a husband and a wife, in light of the love that God has given to them, commit to one another. And there's a commingling of hearts and a commingling of bodies that's a beautiful thing that God has given to be cherished, to be protected. Listen to me, this is not popular in the world today. It is not popular. In fact... There is many who believe absolutely to the contrary, but I preach a biblical ethic. 
It's very much in the Bible over and over and over again. And even though people say that it might be spoken of uh, of only a few times, well, even if it's only spoken of a few times, it's spoken of very, very clearly. And it's very important that the church is not swayed by the world's sexual ethic, but holds to God's sexual ethic and says, God is who matters. And, And listen, it's for our good. It's for our good. God, in light of his sexual ethic, is not some kind of cosmic, cosmic killjoy who's trying to hold something back from you. God, in his mindset, is giving you the good gift of his love in saying that if you don't follow his commands, it does not come with his blessing. God's blessing is the goodness of God and the experience of the things that God wanted you to experience it. The marital love between a husband and wife should produce a joy. A joy that allows you to give yourself completely and wholeheartedly to another. And to do that outside of the context of marriage, whether you're single or you're married, doing it with someone else is sin. It's called sexual immorality. And all of that is going to come under God's judgment. It's going to come under God's judgment. You look at the world around us, and we see that within the dishonoring of marriage is a dishonoring of sex, and that becomes a dishonoring of God, and it tends to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Think about the 1960s until now. It's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse, and God is more forgotten, and people are more unloved and more unhappy. And we think That somehow, if we get the sexual part right, we're going to get it. But God says, unless you understand me, you're never going to understand this. And so, I say this in light of some of the brokenness in the room. I don't want you to go here feeling like a ton of bricks. Because somehow you've dishonored God in your life by being impure sexually. Because I think many of us in the room would say that yes, I have. No one is clean in this area, but there is a point here. And the point is that you can turn to God in reverence and awe of worship. And even in light of your past, he'll purify you in light of Christ's atoning sacrifice. That the sexually broken are not beyond the mending of God. And the promise of Hebrews 4.16 is the promise that's for us today. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. If you need help here, this is the time to ask for it, that we may be help, that we may receive mercy and find grace in, to help in the time of need. That friends, we would look at the regret, we would look at the guilt, we would look at the things that remain undone in our lives, and even the sins that we've committed, and we would say, "Thank you for the blood of Christ that washes away all of my sin." Because even the person that remains sexually pure, quote-unquote, without the hope of Christ, is defiled. Because the only thing that cleanses us is not a sexual purity. It's Christ's purity. And that washes us clean through and through. So trust in him and find forgiveness and grace at his throne in your time of need. Money. Money. 13.5. I just keep going. And we're going to wrap it up here shortly. Keep your life free from the love of money. 
And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Three things right here. I'm going to go through them real quick. The problem is the love of money. The solution is to be content with what you have. The promise is that God will never leave you nor forsake you. The problem, the love of money. Not money, the love of money. Giving yourself wholeheartedly to something that is not God, thinking that it can be God for you. Don't do it. That's the problem. The solution, be content with what God has given you. Don't be content six months from now when your paychecks are higher and you got money in the bank. Be content right now with who and what God has given you. Be content with God. The solution, God will not leave you even if your money does. That's the promise. God will never leave you even when your bank account runs dry. And here's the other promise we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. What God gives you in himself, you will bring with you into the wondrous eternity of heaven. The people that you minister to, the hope that belongs to you today, that you will taste in the life to come. Money and the things that you squander with it, no matter how valuable they may seem, are just going to burn away and be shaken away here on earth. So the promise is that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Why does money matter so much? Why does money matter so much? The gospel math here is important. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Unless you get that right, no matter how much money you save up, you're growing broke. Because you are not gaining the things that God wants you to gain with godliness plus contentment. Don't go broke here. Don't go broke here. Put your hope in the living God who is eternal and who is the unshakable kingdom. Heaven's economy says that money can, can, cannot buy you a relationship with Jesus Christ. No matter how much money you have, that's one of the illusions that money gives you is that it can buy you anything. The one thing it cannot buy you is the perfecting power of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The only thing that gives you that is faith. Faith. Believing that He is greater. Believing that He is greater than money. Side note, I'm thankful that we have people in this room that do Financial Peace University. It's practical, hands-on experiencing, teaching you how to steward the resources God has given you without falling in love with them. Financial Peace University, I'll plug that, I'll plug it again and again because we want to offer that regularly to help you with that difficulty. Finally, the confidence. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Well, money won't protect you when man comes against you, but God will. When the stranger might seem scary and you might want to invite them in, well, the Lord is my helper, I cannot fear. What can man do to me? I'll risk it with this stranger. When we feel we're overly vulnerable because of brotherly love, maybe somehow we'll get rejected when we put ourselves out there. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, I cannot fear. There's this promise that it's at every one of those things that we just talked about. 
if you believe that promise to be true, that God is your steadfast hope, the one whom your heart's affections are consumed with, then it won't be consumed by anything else, and God will help you every step of the way. The Holy Spirit is known as the counselor, the helper. The Holy Spirit will steer you in every one of those situations as you trust him and you walk by faith and not by sight. So those things are things that I ask you this. You can pick one of six of them, maybe all six of them, and ask yourself this question. Where do I have a problem? Where do I have a problem? Do I need to grow in brotherly love? Do I need to hold marriage in honor and repent of sexual immorality? Do I need to be more welcoming of the stranger so that they can become a brother or sister in Christ? Where do I have an issue in my heart that God has to bring healing to? That's the first step here today. Rebecca Pippert, who I opened this as, when a quote with, I'm going to close it with her quote. She says, only when we own up to a problem can we hope to overcome it. Only when we, hope to, only when we own up to a problem can we hope to overcome it. If we insist we have no problem, the problem remains both ours and unconquered. So friends, there's an incredible promise and warning here today. If you can own up to your problem, there's incredible hope for you. If you struggle to own up to that problem, then that problem remains a problem and it's not going to get any better. And so come to Jesus now, who by his grace and by his mercy brings about transformation at his throne. The call is not perfection, friends. The call is repentance, that you are walking in change. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that your word is instructive. Father God, today you have instructed us. And there are many things about our lives that can change in light of your word. God, even today I confess that as I put this together, it can seem overwhelming. I was even overwhelmed by it. But God, you did show me areas in which my life can change, areas in which I could trust you, areas that your mercy, God, can speak into and the blood of Jesus can cleanse. So, Father, we come to you right now not saying we have it all together, but confessing that we don't and that we need your blood. We need your mercy more than we ever thought so that not we walk in perfection of these areas, but we walk in change, trusting in you, believing in you, in the midst of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. The church says, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to take communion, remembering that it is Jesus' blood that washes away our sins and is his broken body that has changed us. Without that atoning work, none of us would be able to identify the problem. None of us would be able to overcome our sin. But he is overcome. And it's through his majesty and glory that we reproach this communion table as the family of God today to say we love you, Lord, and we thank you for this church. Let's take communion together. You can fall down the aisles and go around the sides as you go back to your chair.